Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks that a move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 177. Well, just ahead, the secret sauce propelling growth at WW Granger. And a digital lifeline improving the outlook at the New York Times and a secret, it's not news. And how one tech company thinks it'll make a difference in making the internet faster someday with Lightwave Logic CEO Michael Levy. But first, sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with Era. Customize your company watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy to use customizable interface. That's Era, A I E R A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn. But hit the subscribe button to make sure you catch every show. And The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust is how clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. I'm Corey Johnson, welcome to The Drill Down. We've got the business stories behind some wiggling lines on charts. The least informative way to let, teach you anything about stock. You know, I even read stock market research, Isaac Webster, our executive producer, Isaac Webster, joining me. I read research sometimes, and all it tells me about is the move on the, of a stock price on a chart, not what the company does. It's it's just maddening what passes for business analysis. You know, that's actually a huge pet peeve of mine. When we're researching these stocks that we talk about, these businesses that we're talking about, I should say, a lot of times, you know, Googling around, looking for insightful literature all you know a lot of the stories that are written about these companies are simply where what the stock price has done and where it might head and what's the moving average all that kind of stuff what it doesn't really tell you about the business but that's why we're here here we are let's yeah. do it corey what stocks you're drilling down on today let's start ww granger ww granger i know this name, but I've never really understood what they did. And we're about to tell you, but it's trades under GWW, WW Granger's GWW and shares have risen over 15% in a month and are higher by 24% in a year. Outperforming yeah, the market. Company, $28 billion market cap on this company. Um, they sell stuff. I wish yeah. I could be more uh, business to business stuff, cleaning and stuff. janitorial supplies, electronics and batteries, stuff to maintain vehicles and fleets of vehicles. Furniture, lab supplies, packing and shipping, paints, pipes, hoses, tubes. Is this the definition of a conglomerate? A conglomerate, right? No, no. It's, well, it's, what one, is it's it? all one thing. Conglomerate would be lots of different kinds of companies. I mean, but this is like, this but they're like stuff. everything that we need. Uh, it's it's uh, in ostensibly things that businesses need and need them in size. And what yeah. they found was by being one place for the for where any kind of business can acquire things, that during right. the pandemic, they saw business really pick up. The new customers really picked up. Uh, companies that were unable to go to their sort of specialty supplier were able to find that because Granger uh, carried so much stuff that they could actually find what they're looking for. But also interesting that this this company has always focused on not just the, the most offerings, but the most offerings that can bring them profit. So they've sold off uh, less profitable operations. They have sold off their business in China, always focused on uh, you know better margins. So to your point, not a conglomerate, not a, not acquiring other companies that sell stuff, 
really focused on just adding to their portfolio of the things that they sell. sell. And so the most recent quarter, they delivered a pretty strong quarter. Sales up 17% year over year um, on a constant currency basis up 20%, which is to say FX has been challenging uh, globally in the last uh, a few months. Uh, about $4 billion in sales and gross margins getting better. So it's not just that they're able to raise prices. They're raising prices faster than costs are going up. Gross margins of 145 basis points. And that gave them earnings of $603 million, about 40% higher than a year ago. Uh, this company really focusing on, you know, top line and yes, bottom line. Uh, here is CFO Deirdre Merriweather. We did perform well in the quarter, you know, both top and bottom line, and specifically related to the gross margin um, expectations. Uh, we did um, experience uh, significant product mix tailwinds, um, as well as favorable price cost spread. And I did note that <clears throat> that was due to a couple of factors. Um, price cost being favorably, as we realize the timing benefit um, that we, as we continue to work through cost negotiations uh, with our suppliers, uh, we do expect that uh, benefit to normalize over the next couple of quarters. Um, and so that really aided, um, uh, aided in some of the uh, outperformance. Um, in addition to that, you know, from time to time and at Good Hygiene, we continue to work with customers to make sure that we are receiving the value that we provide to them um, from an economic perspective. And so we also are receiving some benefits in the quarter for that. We also expect that to continue. So interesting focus, not just on profits, but on making sure they're offering the right stuff and they're not charging too much, even as they've gained customers. They want to keep those customers and the CFO uh, clearly cognizant of that. Corey, what is your next drill down? I'm going to look at an oil company, an E&P company drilling for oil and gas, Civitas Resources. Civitas Resources uh, trades under CIVI, S, I mean, C-I-V-I, and shares have tumbled 4% over the past five days. But if you look at a 12-month chart, C-I-V-I shares are higher by 21%. Yeah, this this company's done very very well, and um, they've it's, it's it's such an interesting you know typical oil and gas play in that it's it's very regionally focused. They're good at what they do, and specifically they don't drill a lot of oil and gas when they can't do it profitably. Um, and so they have really increased the size of their business. It's a six billion dollar company right now, still really cheap uh, when compared in terms of how much production they have and everything to a lot of their competitors. They drill in the Denver Basin, also known as the DJ Basin or the, or the Denver Julesburg Basin, which is to say it's a geologic structure in eastern Colorado, uh, all the way, in, these, in their case, all the way up to southeastern uh, Wyoming. So these guys driving, uh, dr drilling, I should say, in the uh, kind of in the Denver area, very much Boulder, further east of that in Weld County, Morgan County, Laramie County, all the way up into Wyoming, um, and drilling a lot more. How much more? Well, the num forget the price of oil. We know the price of oil is up, price of oil up 40% in the last year, at least for this company. Price of natural gas, 110% for this company. But the amounts they are drilling have increased so much because these guys have just turned on more wells and have gotten permits to drill more wells. So the number of barrels, they did 78,000 uh, uh, barrels a day um, uh, in the last quarter. A year ago, that was only 20. 2,000 barrels a day. 
So they've gone up 255% of the barrels per day. Uh, that's about 45% of what they drill. They also drill a lot of gas. The overall equivalent is the the, the overall change is about 300% more oil and gas drilled in the most recent third quarter compared to a year ago. As a result, so much higher uh, amounts of oil, so much higher prices for oil, that means more profits and more dividends for this company. And this is where this company can be really confusing to the casual observer. Because if you look at a lot of the websites that, that calculate, or you know, Bloomberg Terminal or whatever, calculates dividends, this company has two kinds of dividends. They have a fixed dividend, and then they have a variable dividend. So the fixed dividend is something they promise they're gonna always be there. But depending how much cash flow they have, it'll be variable uh, in any given quarter, depending how much profits they make. And so the result is a much higher dividend than the basic dividend that is used in the calculation for dividend. If you look on any one of the, you know, the Yahoo Finance or your E-Trade site or whatever, it's gonna show you that these guys pay a 3% dividend. That is not true. What is it? Because the variable dividend on top of the 50 cent regular per quarter dividend means they're paying about a buck 45 a quarter or about 9% dividend wow. at the current share price. A lot more uh, payout for this company. Um, and they're about to produce a lot more. In the conference call, they talked about um, what they've done in terms of their, their OGDP, Isaac. OGDP, you care to explain? Yes. Oil and gas development plans, OGDP. Oh, you're right. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah. On, I've got man. mine right here in my binder. Your OGDP in your binder. Yes. Well, yeah. these guys have their OGDP ready to roll. And Chris Doyle, the CEO um, of, uh, of, of this company, of, of Civitas, is, is telling us that their OGDP is about to really uh, take off. Because while they're going to continue to support two to four oil and gas drilling rigs, they've got a lot of deals about to come on thanks to uh, their OGDP on the back end of the next uh, the next year and this next quarter. Uh, and they're going to be drilling more wells. Here is CEO of Civitas, Chris Doyle. It's taken some time with the new regulations for both the COGCC and industry and, and ourselves included to get our legs under us. You know, small victory in the in the third quarter is, is a significant one, which is really starting to hit that run rate of, of being able to support, uh, you know, a, a you know, two to four rig program. Um, we see us doing that again this quarter. Uh, we are starting to build that that momentum. As we look ahead into next year, and and you know, keep in mind we're really focused on uh, keeping production broadly flat, and we'll be somewhere in that two to four rig um, piece. We'll have most of this either approved or at least submitted uh, before the end of the year. And I think as you get these caps approved, it should be clear that you know, the, the box elder cap gets approved this week, let's say, we still have OGDPs on the back end of this that should be administrative because we've gone through the, the preliminary siting, but there is still that process on the back end. But we're feeling confident. Um, certainly, uh, year over year, we're probably a quarter ahead of where we were uh, and and look, you know, look to continue to work progressively and, and actively with the COGCC and underpin a, a a conservative, but uh, but a strong development plan. OGDP, yes, and the COGCC, yes, the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. Oh. Not ABCD. to be confused with the Colorado Oil and Gas, what was the conference I went to once? COGA, Oil and Gas Engineers, I think it was. It was a really, really obscure conference of geologists. Oh, it was a geologist, that was it. We were oh. in the oil and gas industry focused in Colorado. Um, but I learned a ton about uh, drilling oil and gas so many years ago. 
spent some quality time with with Boone Pickens at that uh, that event. Nonetheless, uh, these guys at Civitas really drilling up uh, the Colorado, uh, the DJ Basin um, in in uh, eastern northeastern Colorado, and seeing some great results and really focused on cash flow. Corey, what is your next drill down? The New York Times Company. The New York Times. And I got to admit, I, I had to look this company up. You know up. this. Um, no, you didn't. <laughs> the New York Times Company trades under NYT. Shocking. Uh, shares have climbed over 6% the past month. But, you know, a year has not been um, that happy over NYT. Uh, shares have fallen 43% over the past 12 months. But... Yes, hey, indeed. they're climbing As right you now. Know, they're climbing right now. As you know, these are the guys that bring us Wordle. Wordle, yeah. And the New York Times cooking. And so much site. else. And so much else. And did, are you a are you a New York Times like a subscriber as I am? I am. I'm a subscriber, full disclosure. Yeah. But but are you a subscriber to all their other stuff, like the games, like the crossword puzzle and the uh, uh and the cooking site? Um, I have access to it, but I actually don't use it. Okay, well, that is the key to the success for this company right now. They have recognized that advertising is slowing down, but their bundled digital subscriptions for things like the crossword puzzle and things like New York Times cooking, both of which I'm big fans of, um, have uh, have helped this company uh, do really well. And they've because a lot more people signed up for the digital subscription bundle, um, they're trying to reach a water, wider audience than they do with just their their newspaper, their news site. So things like Wirecutter, they talked a lot on the conference call about their sports news site, The Athletic. And the combination of all these uh, these products is, has them uh, with more than a million subscribers now for their uh, all-access offerings. Those people pay about 50% more than their news subscribers. So in an environment where revenues are slowing down because advertising slowing is down, subscriber stuff is really paying off uh, for this company. Um, and, and yes, revenues are continuing to grow. Revenues um, uh, in the last year up about 8%, 9% over the previous uh, uh, trailing 12 months. Uh, even in an advertising slowdown in a tough time, here is CEO Meredith Levine. We also talked a lot last year and the beginning of this year about the importance of subscriber engagement, which is like the most important leading indicator on churn. And we also feel quite good about our ability to drive that um, you know, through the, the qual- differential quality and value of the product, the widening product set, but also the kind of product interventions we make when we enhance how the product works. That, that's, that's really working, and that gives us some greater sense of control, which, which you're getting at. What we have less control over is audience. Um, and, and I'll point to two things that, that certainly change. Obviously, the news cycle itself is going to continue to change. It will ebb and flow. The big thing that we've seen this year that's been different from past years is we, we've had a number of years where it was kind of one or two very, very big storylines driving the news cycle. And now we're seeing a much more varied set of stories. And that means the audience pattern changes. And then there's been a fair amount said kind of about the exogenous factors, the big big tech platforms um, are in some ways kind of shifting away from, from you know, sending audience, as much audience as they were sending to, to news sites. And I'll just say there, we, we felt that a bit in the quarter. We've also got a really good track record of adapting to, you know, exogenous changes in, in the ecosystem. 
So different news stories. You didn't, uh, you know, specifically say it, but I think the story of Donald Trump, the story of January 6th and the election, you know, all one big story, I think, about our former president really drove the audience uh, in the past years. Now we're seeing uh, a more varied set of stories, to quote uh, CEO Levine. Um, it, but in any case, uh, interesting how the, the, the different type of news cycle that we're in right now has uh, led to a moderation in their growth of subscribers uh, for the news only stuff and the advertising also slowing down because of the overall economy. But those bundled subscriptions, New York Times cooking feeds my family and feeds New York Times as well. I got to say something. I, I feel like I wonder if the Washington Post has also like eroded some of their share of the news subscribers. Do not know the answer to that. That is one of the many uh, uh, newspapers I, I read daily. Yeah. Uh, the Washington Post and the New York Times and the LA Times and the San Francisco Chronicle and the SF Standard. Oh, well, look at you. And, uh, what a, a humble brag. Of course, the Wall Street Journal. No, it just means I don't have a life. You're educated. That's why. I mean, it means I start my day really early and I feel like I've done absolutely nothing by about <laughs> nine in the morning. It's ridiculous. Which is usually the case, right? All right, coming up next. We're going to talk to the CEO of a company that uh, has zero revenues and yet it sports about an $800 million market cap because people believe that Lightwave Logic and the CEO, Michael Levy, is going to lead us to a faster, cheaper internet in the near future. We'll have that discussion right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. Welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We are joined right now with the CEO of Lightwave Logic. Michael Levy joined us, Michael, right from right here in San Francisco, right where I am right now. Exactly. Yeah, we're in the same place. But uh, I guess if I look out my window, I can't quite see you. You can hear the, the ring of the ferry bell. It's, that's me pulling on a giant rope, <laughs> ringing the bell every half hour, every 15 minutes. Uh, Michael, uh, Lightwave Logic um, is right in the sweet spot of what we you know when, used to be when we covered technology 10, 15 years ago when I was a technology reporter. Um, you had to know a lot about semiconductors and networking, networking equipment. You guys are right in that. The world, the world has moved up the stack, but uh, you guys, it doesn't work unless uh, networking equipment works. What does Lightwave Logic do? Lightwave Logic actually uh, originally was a chemistry company um, when I first joined the company seven years ago. But what we do now is, is we use our chemistry to create polymers. And we call them electro-optic polymers. So let me just break that down because it sounds super complicated. What is a polymer? Well, if you think about it, what you're looking at right now, Corey, what I'm looking at when I look at my mobile phone is an organic LED display. Remember, we used to have liquid crystal displays, and then we replaced them with OLEDs, organic LED displays. Those are polymers too, except those polymers send out light. So you apply a voltage to them, and you get the red, green, and blue, and that what uh, that's what's used to create a color display. Now, in our polymers, we also apply a voltage, really low voltage level, but we can modulate the light. We can switch the light really quickly. And so the main difference between our polymers and the ones that everybody sees on their displays every day is that we can switch and modulate the light 
And the question next is, is what can you do with that? What can you do? Well, don't do my job for me. What can I do with that? <laughs> Michael Levy. Well, actually, what you can do with that is you can really change the way the internet is run. Now, if we think about the internet, which is composed of fiber optic cables strewn all over the place, right, in buildings across the country, underneath the sea, um, these fiber optic cables obviously have a laser that sends out light. So if you look at my hand for a second, and just assume this is the laser, and the light for is going listeners, out. For our listeners, he's holding his hand. Oh, so if you can't <laughs> see me, light goes out, and then that light needs to be modulated to create the digital signal. So let's just assume we block the light and make the assumption that is a zero. Take your hand away, it's a one. So the very simple way of doing this is, is if you ever, every time you block the light, just like a windscreen wiper or a shutter of your eye, then you're sending optical signals down the fiber. Now, if you can do that super fast, then you can send lots of traffic. If you can do that super fast and do that at very low voltage, like the voltage you put across the polymers, then you can do that at very low power consumption. So if you put the two together, we can send traffic really fast at very low power consumption. And if you can do that very, very small footprint or size, then you've got something that's teeny weeny. And this is what the customers really want to see. Does that mean you could theoretically send it further as well because you were working at such low voltage? And you I wouldn't, wouldn't need say the, the multiplexers that interrupt the lines every, you know, so many miles or whatever? Well, that, that's a very different technical issue to deal with. Um, the thing that we're focusing on is the, is the normal wavelengths. Those are the sort of the colors of, of light you send down the fiber. And those are infrared wavelengths like 1310 and 1550. So that's pretty techy. But in order to send it further, you have to do different things. But typically, when you look at where most modulators are used today, these are the little optical modulator switches. Those are semiconductor-based. They're all over the place wherever a laser is. And the most of them, in, in terms of the highest volume of them, are actually in the data centers and the telephone switches. Actually you know, in distances of like 80 kilometers or less, so quite short distances. And so your question of, could you send it further? Well, you probably could with special techniques, but that's not really our goal. Our goal is to send the traffic faster and lower power. And if you think about that as a, as a normal user of the internet, I mean, I'm working from home, you can see the background today. Um, the more bandwidth I get in my internet, connection to the home, the more sort of video platforms I can run simultaneously. So you can get higher quality video and different types of um, uh, scenarios where you know, your family can use things all at once. And so I would like to see personally higher bandwidth, more data coming into the home, more data going out of the home. And that's really what it's all about. And presumably less power consumption for uh, you know, the data farms that uh, where that's their highest expense. Well, think about this. I, I, somebody asked me the other day, when's the first time I went into a telephone switch? Well, it was in the late 1970s in London. And my uncle worked in a telephone switch. And he says, hey, you're in London. Why don't you come down and have a look? So it was the Holborn Exchange just off uh, Oxford Street. And you walked in, and it was like an army of, uh, what do you call those things, casitas. You know, the insects that just go oh, click, right, click, right, click, right, click, right. click, click, yes. click, click, click. Because there was all the mechanical relays. And at that time, when we picked up the telephone, all the mechanical relays routed the calls to the different destinations. 
Well, if you go into a data center today, you go into a telecom switch today, you don't hear the click, click, click of the mechanical relays. It's all done electronically, of course. But what you do hear is the HVAC. You do hear the air yeah, conditioning. Yeah, yeah. And so the, and the biggest fans issue, on the back of the machines, yes. Exactly. And so the, the biggest issue these folks have is, is keeping the power consumption down because they're generating tons and tons of power. And that turns into heat and they have to cool it. And so if you have a technology that actually does what they want to see, which is going faster in terms of sending more traffic, so you can switch the polymers a lot quicker than semiconductors, and you can operate them at less than a volt, and that means that you can save in electronics through different chip designs and architectures, you're saving power, and this, this is a big deal. So you guys are, uh, in, in SEC terminology, a development stage company, which is to say you haven't sold a thing. Where, where talk to me about that? How that works? You nonetheless have a nine hundred million dollar market cap or so. Where are you guys in the development process? When do you expect to, this to really take off? So we've given some guidance on our development process, and and the big thing that we've talked about over the last year is working with foundries. And so you have to think about what is the technology we have. Well, it's just it's a polymer, right? So it's a liquid. So you can spin it onto a wafer or you can drop it onto a wafer. And you can do that in fabrication plants. Now, we have one in Colorado, Denver, Colorado, but it's pretty small, you know, 1,500 square feet, you know, size of a house if you like. But if you compare that to the big silicon foundries that you see dotted all over the world, I mean, these are hundreds of thousands of square feet and they run lots of wafers and bigger wafers. And so the question is, is should we in Denver, Colorado, really scale up our little fab to run wafers and copycat what's been done as an industry called the foundry industry in semiconductors? Because what we do is we put our polymers down on a silicon wafer. And the simple thing to do is, is to do that at a larger scale so you can ramp quickly. So what we've been doing in the last year to really get to your question is to transfer or port our recipes of making these modulators onto silicon from our little factory, if you like, a little fabrication plant in Denver, Colorado, to big foundries so you can get scale. And transferring recipes is not easy. And so that's what we've been working on over the last year. And we've been reporting guidance on that as we progress through that process. And w would this be the kind of thing, could a Taiwan semiconductor or somebody like that make this, or would they need entirely different equipment? So when you talk about the equipment that's needed to fabricate these polymers, what we have is exactly the same as what you get in a big fab. It's just bigger equipment. It's just, you know, runs bigger wafers and runs wafers a lot faster. But yes, if you look at the equipment we have versus what you find in, for example, you know, as you said, a TSMC or something like that, it's the same equipment. And so the techniques are the same. So when you put this liquid down, you cure it in ovens, that's the same as the fab. And then you can photolith it using photoresist. That's the same as you get in the fab. You can dry etch it. You can wet etch it. You can put metallization down. You can put dielectric layers on top of it. These are all standard process techniques the foundries have. Now, you're going to say, well, this sounds like a piece of cake. Well, if, let's think about it from this perspective. You've got your mother's recipe or maybe your father's recipe or your grandmother's recipe, right? And you're cooking in your kitchen. And now you, your friend says, oh, I like that. I like what you're cooking. Can you cook it in my kitchen? 
Well, that kitchen may not use gas. They may use electric. The oven calibration may be different. Temperatures may be different. So your recipe that you've got right and you've honed over the last 20, 30 years or longer, and you try and make exactly the same in somebody else's kitchen, doesn't work. And in fact, my mother used to make what is known as Yorkshire puddings. And you know, she could do it great in Yorkshire, but when she moved to London, she couldn't do it. And we figured out it was actually the, the water that changed. And so just because you have a recipe doesn't mean you can do it in somewhere else. And so what we've been doing is, is we've been porting our recipe from our little fab into the big foundries. And that, for us, is, is a huge um, it's a huge opportunity because what we're doing is, is we're making our technology ready for scale and volume. So let me ask you again, so what's the timing? When, when do you think you're gonna have a product? So we're production? working, yeah, sorry. Well, so we're working on that right now and we've given guidance that you'll see results at the end of this year and, and in 2023. And so, you know, the challenge is on for us to, to live up to the guidance that we gave this summer. Um, it, and what would you be displacing? Who's who's the when you guys are the winner? What part that no longer goes into the optical networking gear uh, that that uh, is no longer needed? Right. So I'll, I'll answer that question as really quickly as I can. If you look back into lasers and modulators over the last thirty years, basically lasers went up to a certain speed and they couldn't go much faster. But the industry wanted the laser to send out faster signals. So they put that shutter in front of it we call a modulator. And 20, 25 years ago, we were using lithium nibate semiconductors. And that takes like 30, 40, 50 volts to drive those things. And then about 20 years ago, we went to indium phosphide, which is a compound semiconductor. Right. And we got the voltage down to 510 volts. And about 10 years ago, we had, uh, you probably heard of silicon photonics and silicon. Right. And, and so that was, right? gallium used for a different wavelengths, not typically used in, in this sort of space. Okay. But that's another compound semiconductor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So today, the industry uses silicon and indium phosphide. It typically runs three to five, three to six, three to seven volts. Our technology is polymers. Three times faster, it runs in less than a volt. And so what does that do for you? Well, it means that the semiconductors really can't compete anymore. And so now we're going to a polymer technology. Our voltage level is so low, we can actually drive our modulators direct, direct from the ASIC or the CMOS or the DSPs, the existing chips, which means we don't have to have special driver chips you don't have to, to drive supply, our modulators. Right? Correct, and that saves power. Super interesting. Uh, well, this will be one to keep an eye on uh, as we get uh, closer to that time. And presumably you're trying to get designed. I mean, well, let me ask you before we get there, before we finish, do you then get designed in and you've got to sort of, you can show that you've achieved production, but th at that point, do you start to work with some of the, the manufacturers to get your, your components designed into their products? You, you work with the customers as early as you possibly can, and we've been receiving feedback from customers. They've been well, telling us exactly. I'm, I'm sure you like the contract now, but what, what, are, the, what, are, the, what are the manufacturers say? <laughs> manufacturers are very excited. This is an exciting technology. We haven't given a lot of guidance on that, but we are engaged with the customers. And the, the thing that uh, I want everybody to realize is, is that earlier this year, the whole field of modulators that work with really high speed and low power really opened up. There's a bunch of technologies that are out there. We are actually leading the pack. And this is a, a 
part of the field that the customers now realize if they want to add value to their customers, which is the other you know, service providers, then they're going to have to have faster modulators working at lower power. So this is like a guaranteed opportunity. It's huge. This is where the internet needs to go. Uh, we're engaged in this quite deeply, and um, it's, it's just a really exciting uh, vehicle right now. Interesting company, an interesting t- uh, place in time. Michael Levy, CEO of Lightwave Logic. Thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Cheers. Great talking to you, Corey. All right, up next on the Drill Down Podcast, the bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot about Lightwave Logic right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. With Era, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A.com. And you can listen to the Drill Down on your smart speaker by saying to your smart speaker, hey, insert name of smart speaker, play the Drill Down podcast and you'll pick up right where you left off. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, we're back with the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. I'm going to give you a dollar figure, Isaac. I'll let you guess what it means. The dollar number is $96,961,240 U.S. dollars. Want to guess what that is? Um, the amount that they pay per subscriber. No, <laughs> this, this 800 million market cap company roundabout has spent $96,961,240 so far with a, without a single dollar of revenue. Oh, wow. so they've got about a hundred million dollars in an accumulated deficit, uh, without any product to show for it. Yet. Burn baby burn. Wow. Yeah. Um, right now the market doesn't seem to care. Uh, about this massive loss with belief about uh, future products to come. Uh, we wish uh, Michael Levy and uh, the rest of the folks at Lightwave Logic a lot of success. Be great if their products uh, were out there and someday worked. But right now, doesn't exist. TBD. When I, when I, where I grew up, uh, people would ask about organized crime and they referred to the mafia. And what you were taught to say at a young age doesn't exist. And on that note, against the Italian American people <laughs> doesn't exist. Uh, I've got nothing on that. All right. Well, thank you for your time, uh, dear listener. We appreciate it, it quite a bit. Uh, Isaac Webster is our executive producer. He is the guy with nothing on that. Ben Wilson <laughs> is our editor extraordinaire. I'm Corey Johnson. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.